Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Kansas City jazz drummer Todd Stray. He was born and raised in Topeka, Kansas, and got into jazz out of sheer curiosity. He was spinning 45s his dad had lying around, big band era things, and the like. He would go on to New York to learn from the best and play with Marion McPartland. From there, he came to Kansas City and jumped into a very fertile and rich scene and played with the likes of Bob Bowman and Karen Allison. Then he went on to Portland, and now he is back in Kansas City in another thriving scene. He's got some great tales, so dig this interview, my friends. Thank you for taking a little time out. I appreciate it. That's my pleasure. Thank you so much. So I'm going to go ahead and dive right in here, and just give me kind of a snapshot of what's been going on lately musically with you. Uh, lately, musically, it's gotten very, very busy. Uh, as I just mentioned, I recently relocated back to Kansas City after, I think it's been 14 years, hooking up with old friends and new friends and uh, uh, playing a lot around town. Plus, I'm starting to travel again. So I didn't travel for about six years um, after after my youngest son was born. And I was a daytime dad, basically, and did some local gigs and a couple trips here and there, but nothing like what it had been previously. So now I'm kind of... He's in school, and I'm getting back into uh, work and play, mostly play, actually. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Yeah. So where, where were you at? Did you go to Topeka? No, I grew up in Topeka, and uh, after high school, moved to New York City. Stayed there for about uh, nine years, ten years. Moved back to Kansas City for about 13, and then the last 14 years or so, I've been in Portland, Oregon. We'll, get, we'll kind of go through the chronology of everything, but let's go ahead and start off, I guess, in the hyper-local right now. Do you have any recording projects or anything that's in the works, any projects? Um, actually, I just did uh, two recently, one just about three days ago in Portland with uh, a vocalist from San Francisco named Madeline Eastman. So it was kind of a cool little project. It was my very good friend, Randy Porter, who's a phenomenal musician, piano player. Uh, he has a studio, recording studio, and he decided to open it up and have kind of a live studio recording. So there was actually about yeah 15 people in the studio, uh, just watching it as it happens, which was kind of fun. Um, you know, very interesting, different kind of a take on it. And they were troopers because, you know, we did you know, two takes of every tune and stopped in the middle of a couple of them and, nope, it's a wrong chord change or whatever. So, But I think they, they enjoyed seeing how it's actually put together. And we did the whole thing in about four hours. So wow. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the, the nice thing is that it was more like a gig. But a gig yeah. with a with more of a purpose than just you know make playing to the end. Yeah. So I've heard some of the rough the roughs of it, and uh, it sounds really good. You know, there's some tweaking to do, of course, but uh, once that's done, it should be pretty nice. And uh, again, with Randy and the same bass player, John Watala, he's from San Francisco. Uh, we recorded a few months ago uh, a CD with Nancy King, and uh, who's a phenomenal vocalist from Portland, but uh, she spent years touring with Ray Brown's trio and also spent some time with the group Oregon. And, uh, oh gosh, her history goes way back. She's, I think she's in her mid-70s, late-70s now. And just, just such an incredible musician, you know, wonderful vocalist. So that's going to be coming out in a couple months, I think. That's a little slower process. Right on. So those are the last two things, you know. Very and cool. And we'll see what else comes around. Yeah. Let's get to the beginnings of your life in Topeka. Talk about your childhood. Talk about how you got into music and your family a little bit. Well, my let's see. Uh, my dad was a piano player, kind of a weekend warrior, and uh, his, his regular job uh, during the week was with the State Department of Education. 
And my mother was a teacher and a counselor uh, in elementary schools. But my dad was a big poor freshman Stan Kenton fan. And from, I, I was telling this to somebody else, I remember in third grade I was home with the flu or something. And uh, just so bored, I put on a bunch of these, rec- these little 45s that he had kind of stacked up in a corner. And uh, it was the four freshmen doing stuff like Poinciana and Day by Day and, you know, uh, old folks, stuff like that. And uh, something about it, I just really, really, uh, you know, loved the way that sounds, sounded to me. And uh, so then I found some records with the four freshmen, Stan Kenton, of course, from my dad's collection. And that got me into the big band thing. And then from there, I just, you know, kind of spread out and found out a whole, of a whole, about a whole other bunch of musicians, you know, big bands and Count Basie and uh, Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich and Louis Belson, not Max Roach and Philly Joe and Elton Jones, Tony, you know, on and on and on. So I started getting really into probably in middle school, like seventh grade, as far as the drums and uh, music, but I started to really hear it and be interested in it when I was in grade school. Say, why did the drums make so much sense to you? Well, I started off wanting to be a trumpet player, and that's what I was going to be. And uh, so I was actually not a bad trumpet player for a little kid. And uh, uh, we we lived on a farm out north of Topeka, and at one point, and I just loved to practice in the barn. We had this huge barn full of hay, and I sounded like Clifford Brown in that barn. I mean, big, warm sound. Of course, anywhere else, I sounded like a, a balloon with the air being squeezed out of it, you know, just – but uh, I was going to play trumpet, and then I got braces, and uh, my mouth literally bled when I played, and I just – I couldn't do it. So there was some drums. I was kind of messing around with them anyway in the corner and, you know, picked them up and, and got way into that. Of course, living on a farm helped because we had no neighbors. Yeah. And uh, I could play whenever I wanted to, and, you know, it was actually pretty ideal. So I'm glad I chose the drums uh, now because it's, uh, I just love playing drums. So when you were a kid growing up, after you got kind of baptized in all of this music that you were listening to and then, you know, going from the trumpet to the drums, was it always like the dream to be a musician or did you just kind of happen to get into that? Were there other dreams, I guess I should say? No, actually, I went to a, uh, mentioning Stan Kenton, I uh, went to a Stan Kenton camp, which is, uh, I guess the predecessor to the Aversold camps now, you know, just a jazz camp for a week. And uh, I must have been seventh grade, eighth grade, something like that. And uh, the very first night, like every night, the, the the big band did a concert for the students. And this was at, at Drury University in Springfield, Missouri. I sat there in the front row and I was so blown away by not only the band, but the drummer. His name is Gary Hobbs, who and uh, he's now a good friend of mine. He lives in in Vancouver, Washington, which is basically a suburb of Portland. But it just knocked me out so much. I sat there at the end of the concert and thought to myself, I am going to do that. And so I decided then that that's what I was going to do. And, and everything since then has just been, how am I going to keep doing this? <laughs> it's not like, you know, uh, I never really had any other interests. So for better or for worse. But as far as, you know, something that, that hit me that that strongly, um, that's when I decided. And kind of unusual, I guess. But. Well, no, and, and the beauty of that, and I hear this a lot in jazz stories. I'm reading the bio of Terry Gibbs right now. He talked about when he was a boy and he saw Benny Goodman come up in Carnegie. It may not have been Carnegie. It may have been somewhere else in New York. But 
he was at a theater and he came up out of the ground and he just totally lost his mind. Here's Benny Goodman. <laughs> Here's the best band. And then later on in life, he spent a long time and had a great relationship, played at his funeral even. And I think wow. about how cool that has to be to have not only a dream realized, but you're with your idol and you get to hang out and get to know him. That has to be totally cool. It's, yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah, you know, it's pretty amazing. So, uh, just just to reiterate, just to kind of refresh me so I can keep kind of the timeline here. After sure. Topeka, you go to, did you say you went to New York or did you go to Kansas City? No, I went to New York. Basically, it was Bridgeport, Connecticut, actually, but that's only 20 miles north of New York City. I went okay. to University of Bridgeport in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and the other two drummers who were there uh, at the time were Joel Rosenblatt and Dave Weckl, and they were both students. And so they're a couple of years older than me, I guess, but we're basically the same age. And the uh, the director of the jazz studies department there was Neil Slater, who then who later went on to uh, direct the one o'clock at North Texas State. He's retired now. But the reason I moved to Bridgeport, Connecticut, was because of a drummer named Ed Thope. And I'd heard Ed with the Clark Terry and to the Ingersoll camps that I attended when I was in high school. And uh, I wanted to study with him. And so that's why I went uh, there. Let's see, I taught there. I started to work pretty much right away. And uh, by the end of the first year of school, I was working more than I was going to school. And uh, third semester, I just was like, eh, you know, I, I think I'm done with school. Because I had just gotten a call from Miriam Partland, piano player, and joined her trio. And uh, that was that was uh, a priority for me over music education. <laughs> yeah. So, which I'm not, I'm not cut out for anyway. So I think I made the right choice. Yeah, so I lived in uh, Connecticut and New York from 1980 until uh, November, December of 89. And then that's when I moved back to Kansas City. You know, I have so many good memories of listening to that NPR show with Marion. She just could open up that Pandora's box of jazz. That may be one of the reasons why, I mean, along with obviously getting baptized in Kind of Blue and everything that was so good about that that late 50s era, but listening to her talk to all those cats and to bust out that piano rhythm she had was, was beautiful. Yeah, no kidding. She was amazing. I mean, she was a total people person. She could talk to anybody, you know, hang out with Dizzy Gillespie or Tony Bennett. I actually saw this, you know, just like old friends and joking around. And then, you know, walking down the hall and, and there's a guy, you know, cleaning out the, the bathrooms and she's, Stood there, stood there, and would talk with me. just just like your old friends. I mean, she was really truly an amazing, amazing person, an incredible woman, and a great musician. And I've just been blessed that I had that time with her. So, what did you learn from her? I mean, obviously, as a person, she was pretty phenomenal. Um, but what did you learn from her as a musician? That had to be at that time in your life, coming from Topeka to kind of a culture shock of New York and then being with someone so high profile, that had to be a massive learning curve. Well, it was, it was, I was scared to death most of the time. And, you know, she was old school. She, uh, you know, she would never, she would never really tell me anything. And uh, she'd say, well, you know, your flight at the airport is on American and it leaves at two o'clock and flight numbers are just, just go and bring a tux. And, like, I wouldn't know if we were going to play a club or if it was a concert or a symphony or a, or a festival, anything. So we'd get to the gig, and this happened the whole time I was with her. You know, she would never write out a set list. We never rehearsed. We never talked about endings, beginning, nothing like that. And I asked her, I said, you know, what are we going to play? She goes, oh, I don't know. You'll hear it. 
And then I was talking with the bass player early on, you know, I was like, geez, Gary Maserati, you know, did, did you guys rehearse this stuff? And he goes, no, no, she likes to do it differently every time. And even when I get used to playing a particular tune in a certain key, she'll just change the key without telling me. It was all, and I've thought about that. It's, it's such a good way to, to build your reaction, you know, uh, uh, be able to react quickly, you know, and yeah. she was, she was such a master. I, you know, if it hadn't been for her, most of the stuff I played probably would have sounded just awful, but you know, she, uh, was in such control that no matter what I did, she and Gary too, uh, made it sound like it was okay. Right so on. I, I think that's what I learned from her was just, you know, total concentration, at least as much as I can in the moment. And, you know, learning to not think about what just happened because it's too late anyway. Always yeah. be right there and ready, you know. And that's, that's I think, a valuable lesson, you know. So, so what else in New York? That's a pretty big period to be in the epicenter of jazz for the entire world. Or that, you know, that's it. So what else in that 14 years between players and experiences really helped to groom you as a musician? Um, I think some of the things that, that helped me were to be in the atmosphere of, uh, with people who were totally dedicated and really passionate about the music and really, you know, uh, trying to make it the best they could all the time. You know, I mean, you, before I got there and early on, you know, I'd be playing a wedding in somebody's backyard in the summer and be like, oh, this just sucks. You know, I can't wait till this is over, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, you never know who's going to be there, and you never know who's going to hear it. I mean, you know, uh, George Clooney could walk in. Maybe he's related to the bride's sister. You know what I mean? Like, you just never know. And I've been in situations, found myself in situations where I was taking it for granted, and then I looked out in the audience, and I was like, oh, my God, that's Billy Cobham. What's he doing here? Because it's New York City. You know what I mean? I mean, you just don't know. And so then it's kind of like, yeah, maybe I should play the best I can as no matter what, even if there's only two people, you know, because that person might, you know, pass on that, oh, they heard, you know, this great group uh, to somebody that, you know, uh, could actually help you, you know, and and spread the word. Yeah. So uh, that's one one thing I learned, you know, just being on my own and dealing with circumstances, like I just mentioned with Marion, but, you know, some of the most of the musicians I played with were older. Like I was always the baby, you know what I mean. So they were decades older than me. Uh, Cal Farlow and Barney Kessel, uh, those guys. Of course, they were in their sixties when I was playing with them. And I was twenty-three, I think, twenty-two, something like that. So you know, they everybody was very understanding, forgiving, and and you know, I'm sure I made way more mistakes than I even remember. But you know, I was I was so and still am sincere about trying to make the music as best the, the best that it can be that, you know, you're forgiven some discrepancies or, or, or mistakes if, if you're really, I think, sincere about it. Absolutely. Well, you know, and I've experienced you firsthand on a number of occasions. Were you there when, uh, were you with Herman that night that uh, Tavon came in? No. Uh, let's see, I was with... Phil. I was at the Green Lady... Yeah, with Phil DeGreg, yeah. Okay, Phil DeGreg. I got to tell you, and I told Phil this, too. I talked to him after the show. I don't know that I've ever been to a show in Kansas City where the crowd was completely in tune with you guys on stage in a way that (laughs) I haven't. That room was electric. I mean, the storm was going on outside. 
but there was something right. going down. And then when Tavon came in, it just added. There was a real good energy. I don't know if you felt that on stage, but it was happening pretty well that night. Oh, I absolutely felt it. And that's one of those nights that I think we all do this for, is a night like that, where it's really clicking. Everybody's, you know, really trying. And you're right, when Tavon came in, he just raised the bandstand to a whole other level. Everybody really focused. And it was a team, you know, we, it was, it was a real team effort. And the energy from the audience, like you said, that, that always helps. It's a two way street, you know. Yeah. You, you can be playing great music and if nobody's listening, it's kind of like, eh. But if everybody's on board and, and with, you know, in the same space, wow. I mean, I just don't know anything that can beat that. Oh, you know, that's, that's it. Yeah. I, I was bowled over by it. I, I, it's been very rare. I've seen a lot of shows locally, but when I left that show, I, I was like, you know, it, there, there was a lot of special feelings with the Charlie Parker week, and Devon was kind of kicking off his weekly residence here. But it was uh-huh. more than that. And, and I've never really heard too many people on stage say, like, Phil was very vocal, like, wow, you guys are great. And you, you hear musicians say that, and I think it's just kind of stage balance, but I think he was genuinely like, wow, this is happening. There's magic going on here. So it was cool. Very cool to see. Yeah, there there definitely was that night for sure. I've heard that before in New York with Jim Hall's quartet and uh, a piano player named Bill Mays did an amazing uh, uh, piano solo, just, just uh, you know, condensa with uh, uh, Joe Rocasano's uh, big band at the Blue Notes. And I was there. It was packed, you know, New York City weekend or whatever. And Bill Mays played this solo that brought the entire universe right into that room. I mean, wow. nobody was even breathing. I don't even know how he did it. It was just the most phenomenal thing. You know, and some some musicians can do that. I think of that night that you're referring to at the Green Lady was was similar to that. We were all in it together, you know. And uh, there was definitely, it was a very special night for sure. So Yeah, I loved it. And the one thing, I went the following week and it rained also, and uh, George V. Johnson was there. And I was thinking on the way down, because it was the end of the Charlie Parker week, I was thinking about when he died, there was a peal of thunder over New York City. And they've documented this, and they said that people heard it. It happened when he died. So on the way down, I was thinking about that, because I knew a rainstorm was coming in. While those guys were on stage, a peal of lightning went off, and the electricity went out in the blue room, and no one stopped playing. So everything (laughs) It was awesome. So no... Everything was acoustic except for George, and he kept singing. And it, like, flickered, and everything stayed off for about seven seconds, and then it came up, and everybody was kind of looking at each other like, I don't think anybody captured that on film, and no one wanted to because it was a moment where it was like, wow, this yeah. is good living right here. So yeah, um, it, was, it was cool. Anyway, I, I strayed away a little bit, but I want to get back. So after New York City, tell me what happened after that. What brought you away from New York? Uh, let's see. Well, I moved to Kansas City, and uh, I was just newly married at the time. Uh, and my wife then, and I started a family. So, and we were here. Uh, my timing was really good because um, Danny Embry and Bob Bowman had just moved back. Karen Allison had just moved to town. Uh, Kevin Mahogany was starting to work a little bit more around town. And uh, I just was so lucky to, to kind of fall into some of these uh, groups. So it's, it kind of started with with Bob, Danny, and Rod, you know, a group called Interstring. And we, you know, got busy and played a lot and, and uh, had some really, some good fans. 
strong following there. And then Karin started to get busy and, and I started to travel with Kevin Mahogany in 1994, 95, and stayed with him for about five years. We went all over the world. Uh, Kevin and Tyrone Clark, a uh, great bassist here in Kansas City, and myself, and uh, a couple guys from New York. And then uh, uh, the thing with Kevin ended, and that's when Karin started to get busy. And so we started traveling all over the world, you know, with her. And I was also working, uh, uh, starting to work more and more with Eldar, young piano player. He's in New York now. So, and then uh, he started to travel a bunch. So for about seven or eight years, uh, I had two full-time gigs with Karin and Eldar. And I was so lucky because the schedules hardly ever conflicted until the ninth or tenth year. And suddenly everything conflicted. So I had to make a, a choice. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, but I, you know, I, I had like three of everything, like three you know, shaving kits and three suitcases. And, and there was a couple of times, well, more than a couple of times where I would come home from one trip and put the suitcase inside the door and pick up the other one that I had packed before I left and took off for the airport to leave again. And it was just pretty nuts there for a while. Oh, yeah. That, you know, all was happening when uh, uh, we moved to Portland in 2002. And that continues until about six years ago. So, so the travel was pretty intense. That's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would think you would need a break after that. So how did you actually get to a point of meeting and becoming a regular for Carr and Allison? Uh, most, well, most of it was just doing gigs around town, you know, here in Kansas City and uh, developing, you know, uh, the music with her and uh, Bob and Danny and uh, Rod Fleeman, too, uh, later. But, uh you know, and as she started to travel, I was open to travel. Uh, no rehearsal was needed. We were comfortable. We were friends. You know, uh, that's that's how it was. Never any kind of plan. It just kind of developed on its own. Right on. So you traveled the world with her. A lot of people that that were involved in this operation. Not only fans, but just moving and traveling. Do you have any good stories about touring worldwide with Karen? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tons. Probably I've forgotten most of them. I was just talking with Bob Bowman, my my dear dear friend, and he and I were talking, remembering a trip that we did on the QE2, which is a, a ocean liner, which is now I guess retired. But the trip was from New York to London, and it lasted a week. And uh, it's a jazz cruise, so uh, I was with Karen and also uh, Annie Ross. I did, did two gigs that week. But uh, the first day out, beautiful. Second day, this, you know, got a little stormy. And the, I think it was the second night or the third day, we hit like we were in a hurricane. It was like a level wow. nine storm. And they closed, of course, you couldn't go on deck, but they also closed all the windows so you couldn't see out. And if you can imagine, this ship is like a quarter of a mile long. And I remember that because they said, if you want to walk a mile Walk around the ship four times. That's a mile. So here's the ship. And, I mean, it was the seas were 70 foot, 60, 70 foot waves, I guess, is what I learned later. But, I mean, you know, entire rooms would just slowly go up and then lean to the right. No doubt. Wow. You know, and this went all day and all night until we reached London. And it smelled like a vomitorium in there. And, you know, people were taking medicine and people were fainting and, you know, on the, 
you know, we tried tried to play and, and got some music out, but I mean, they had to bolt the pianos down and the cymbal stands were falling over. And it was one of the shows I did with Annie Ross. I mean, she wasn't too steady on her feet anyway, but uh, the ship kind of lurched to the left and, and she lost her balance and almost fell off the stage and this guy caught her. So they got her up on stage, got a chair for her, you know, and uh, got into the next tune and then the ship lurched to the right and the chair actually slid off, you know, started to slide off the stage toward the front and somebody else jumped up and caught her and then they called it. You know, it's like, okay, we're done. Yeah. But all week like that and Bob and I would go, you know, try to eat something if we could hold it down and, you know, we're sitting up there in the in the lunchroom or whatever and... <laughs> You know, the ship would lurch, and, and in the kitchen, you hear this. All the dishes would be breaking, you know. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, I mean, um, and then Bill McLaughlin, he was with us, you know, of course. He was with us a lot, and uh, uh, he was pointing out to us that at one point, we were looking at a map on the wall or something. He said, look, we're 12 miles from where the Titanic sunk. And it was oh, like, no. yeah, thanks a lot, Bill. You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, stuff like that. Anyway, that's one story. I, I just, I could, I could bore you all day with stuff, but that was one that I recently was talking with Bob about, and, and just it cracks me up every time I think about it. Yeah, that's so. a great story for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you've been around um, the country. You've seen different jazz scenes. Tell me what the Portland jazz scene is like. The Portland jazz scene is interesting. It's um. Well, first I'll say, I mean, the quality of musicians there is just incredible. So really world-class players there, just as like in Kansas City. But, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the guys are teaching uh, either privately, <clears throat> excuse me, or in schools, or they don't really have to work anymore for whatever reason. So, you know, the, the cost of living there is quite high. It's basically Kansas City times two. And uh, uh, the scene itself is, it's, it's, I think, kind of struggling. It's, there's not a whole lot, you know, of music in clubs. And I think a lot of that is due to the culture of the town changing. I mean, Portland's a great town. I love it. It's just beautiful in the, in the Northwest. But, uh, you know, somebody told me recently this, that this is, you know, Portland is where 20-year-olds go to retire. And a lot of a lot of folks are coming up from, well, coming from all over the place. But, uh it's got more of a of a feeling of a sports town now than a than a music town, to me. So you know, of course, Nike's based there, Intel is based there. Uh, you know, people are moving there in droves because it's so gorgeous. But it's uh, you know, it just isn't a real high priority, unfortunately. And it's a, it's a shame because the talent out there is just ridiculous. My friend Randy Porter, I mentioned, Becky Kilgore is out there. Uh, Gino Vanelli lives there. Uh, Dave Frischberg lives there. Uh, Dave Friesen lives there. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's something else. So I enjoy going back there. I, when I was back, I just got back from there last night. And, uh, uh, you know, I can be busy while I'm there. But, uh, you know, it's it's a different than Kansas City. I think yeah. Kansas City, in Kansas City, people support it so openly and freely and uh, uh it's just it's got more of a I don't know more of a party kind of a feel. And I think in Portland there's you know people are very careful of of their territory in a sense. Yeah, know? yeah. So well, I think it will turn around for Portland eventually. But right now they're they're kind of in a valley as far as the town and music goes. You know? Interesting. Well, you've had the benefit of leaving Kansas City. You know, you've been on both coasts. You've been in pretty big scenes. 
What has been the benefit of pursuing a jazz career outside of Kansas City? A lot of it is, for me, is the people I've met and who I'm still in touch with that live all, all over the world. And uh, uh, also seeing the, the whole world. I don't know if I – I certainly could never have afforded to travel on vacation to the places that I've been. But, uh, you know, I've gotten a, a really good view of, of, I think, how people live in different parts of of the world and it's it's incredible the differences but uh, you know every most most people i think are we're all kind of the same you know when, it, when we, if we just boil it right down to basics we want to you know uh feel respect and and give respect and warmth and love are good you know uh I've, everywhere from brazil to europe and switzerland to japan uh even uh uh, uh what year and a half ago I was in uh Kyrgyzstan with Eldar. We went back into the, the three days there. Uh, so, Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. And, you know, people, uh, man, if, if you, you know, are open and, and treat them with respect, I mean, that's, that's a pretty important thing, pretty important lesson. Yeah, but that adapt. Well, you've had the opportunity in your life to rendezvous with Kansas City. So, let me ask you this. What, compare the jazz scene today to the way it was 20 years ago. Well, when I was here in the 90s, it was totally killing you know, it's really hot, and it feels just like it does now. Except that in the '90s, I was one of the the 30-year-olds. Now I'm in, in <laughs> mid 50s, right? So <laughs> yeah. I'm one of the old guys now. You know, and man, these cats. I mean, I I hate to start naming names, but I'll I'll name a few with you know, and I'm going to leave people out, and I don't certainly don't mean to, but John Kazilamut, Brian Stever, and Herman Mahari, Peter Slim, Matt Billinger. Oh gosh, I could started naming bass players Seth Lee and you know on and on and on I mean these guys are just sounding great and so much so full of, of such good pure energy and uh, I think they've raised the level raised the bar for us old guys you know so I mean they're really bringing some some great stuff to the table and I think that the music is in, in the best possible hands with these cats Right so, on. Um, it, it just makes me so happy, and I love playing with them. It, you know, it, it, it kicks kicks me to do it sometimes because uh, it, it takes me out of my comfort zone a little bit, and I like that. And uh, you know, uh, I don't mind sounding bad if I'm really trying because that's how I'm going to sound better is by really trying. So, and it's cool. I'm old, and I don't care. Right on. <laughs> so that's kind of the nice thing about. Yeah. So I'm going to just keep trying. That's the beauty of age, for sure. Um, there you go. How does your playing vary with different types of groups, or does it? Yeah, it definitely does. Uh, I guess, you know, what I try to do is, as a drummer is uh, I'm not really comfortable as a leader or leading the music, but I, I feel most comfortable as a team player. And when I play with different groups or in groups that I have, don't know the guys yet or, or girls, you know, whoever, uh, I try to find where where I can I can balance best or be you know what does the group need does it need you know what can i bring to the group that's that is uh will really help it the most and so in some situations like with eldar for instance that trio you know uh i'll play pretty on top of the time i'll you know i'll also be busier play a lot more interact more take more chances uh with Karin, when I was doing, I, in fact, I'd say those two because they're two pretty opposite situations. With Karin, it's, you know, it's it's more like, uh, oh gosh, how to put it, 
Um, it's more fluid. So the time is not going to be exactly perfect. It's going to depend on the mood. And Otoon could be totally different tempos depending on the night. Also, uh, you might have to kind of bend and flow in a tune to make it work instead of, you know, being metronomically perfect. Uh, and that's good as well, but it doesn't work in some situations. And so, and, and, uh, with, with, uh, that group like that, I would, I would be thinking more of a, of a painter. You're thinking of like a painter and colors and support instead of interactive. So not that I would play less, but I would just approach it from a different angle. Yeah. In a big band, of course, you know, uh, the buck stops with me, you know, and, and uh, luckily the big bands I've played with mostly are really good uh, with good lead trumpet players. And, man, if, if that guy is strong, then I just couldn't be happier. So, uh, you know, it's just hooking up and dancing with that lead trumpet player. <laughs> you know, making sure that it, we're all on the same page. And if there's a discrepancy, then I'll take the reins and, and insist on what I think is right. And if it's not, then I'll I'll take it. You know, that's my responsibility. But with 18 people, somebody's got to, you know, put their foot down at some point. Yeah. So, and that's the drummer. That's that's what the drummer should do, I think. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Why do you love jazz? Because it's, uh, because it's freedom, but you've got to be responsible. It's freedom with responsibility. So I love jazz because... Oh God, that's a huge question. For one thing, it's the language that I that I uh, love. It's not Chinese or French or whatever. You know, it's a definite language. Um, pretty much everybody in the world speaks it in some way, or can at least understand it in some way. Uh, to be really good at it, um, you have to work on it, and it's a daily thing. You know, whether you actually play your instrument every day or not, you've got to be thinking about it, or aware of it, or listening to it, or something. And, you know, I mean, when I was young, I used to think about, oh, God, I have to practice. What a drag, you know. And then I got past that tipping point where it's like, I can't wait to practice. I still can't wait to practice. And I think about music on the plane last night. You know, coming here, I'm thinking about, you know, different grooves in my head. And not necessarily of what the drummer did, but what did the bass player do? I'm trying to think about, you know, every aspect of, of a group, say, as a, a trio, for instance. So I love it for those reasons. Also, for whatever reason, I, you know, uh, I relate to it really well. There's a lot of music and a lot of tunes, a lot of records that, for whatever, you know, whatever reason, I heard at a very pivotal point in my life, and I can put that same track on or that same record on and go right back to that point, the high points and the low points, you know. Yeah. So it's it's a real oh gosh, it's it's just like a photo album for me and. uh you know, right now it feels like a brand new era. So there's a lot of new music coming and a lot of great new things that are happening. And I'm very excited to be in Kansas City among, like I mentioned, these these guys, my old friends and these younger guys, uh, you know, to to make some more, put some more pages in this full up. Absolutely. So what has been one of the nicest things a fan has ever said to you about your music? Oh, wow. Uh <laughs> I don't know. Um, I guess one of the one of the things that I take as a high compliment is, uh, uh, well, one is is if someone will sit right next to the drums for the entire gig and not complain that it's too loud because I, I'm not a loud drummer. I think I, you know, but but someone who's not afraid to get close, 
to them, you know, or uh, they're open enough to give it a chance to see. Someone else said something to me recently. Uh, you know, they weren't over, you know, overly excited or anything, but but they they basically said, you know, I I really just heard what you were doing, and it was something along those lines. And I thought that's that's really cool. Thank you. You know, they heard the melody. They heard the chord changes. If I took a solo, you know, they they really understood what I was doing, and that's important to me because I want people to understand. You know, I'm not trying to play hide and seek. Or I'm not trying to be, you know, uh, uh, too technical or uh, complicated for people to understand. You know, I like when people understand what I'm trying to do. Yeah. So that, was, that was a nice compliment. I, I really appreciate that. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, Portland, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Todd for his time and all of those stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or you can go to YouTube, type in Neon Jazz, and for all things Neon Jazz, the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.